0: The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only, and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Key. I'm Tim Borum Well, last time around, I spoke with well-known life sciences entrepreneur, Paul Hopper. And today I've got with me another face from the industry that needs uh, no introduction. And that's uh, Dr. Chris Berenbrook. Now, Chris originally hails from uh, Canada. Um, I was almost going to say the US, which is a, which is the ultimate insult, of course. Uh, and has uh, 20 years or more than 20 years experience in, in healthcare. And that includes some uh, roles at big global uh Companies such as uh, Siemens, which is which is known to all, but uh, closer to home, uh, Chris was a, a former chairman of Cell Therapies, uh, which was in partnership with the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, um, and until until recently he was a director of the ASX-listed Amplia Therapeutics, and he's currently a director of Factor Therapeutics, also on the ASX. Um, Chris is perhaps better known to many as the author of a former website called ASX Longtail, which uh, certainly pulled no punches when it came to uh, critiquing the uh, biotech sector. These days, though, Chris spends most of his efforts uh, heading up Telex Pharmaceuticals, also ASX listed, uh, an advanced stage nuclear medicine play with a market cap now of uh, well over a billion dollars. Among other qualifications, uh, Chris has a, a doctorate in biomedical engineering from Oxford University and a MBA from uh, New York uh, University. Uh, So he's a smart cookie indeed. But uh, in any event, uh, how does a a Canadian like yourself uh, end up running uh, an Australian biotech?
1: Yeah, look, I came to Australia when I was in my teens. My, My dad got a fairly senior job at BHP. Uh, in the reservoir engineering in the petroleum engineering department so you know at the time 101 collins was the sort of global headquarters of bhp and so we ended up in melbourne and um needless to say you know we loved it here you know when you're when your parents are in the oil industry and you move all around the planet following oil there's a lot of places that you end up living which are far less desirable than australia
0: jeez it's It's interesting you didn't pursue um a, re- a career in resources but but you've uh you, you've opted for a uh, sector which uh, sort of has the same uh, speculative qualities uh, if, if, if if you like
1: yeah it's funny i mean I actually did originally train as a chemical engineer and earth scientist uh and then after doing that for three years i got um i got bored you know it's at the age where I didn't really know what I wanted to do so you do what dad does kind of thing right but um I fell in love with biology a little bit later on in life um but uh yes you you're absolutely right there are a lot of similarities between life sciences and and mining and resource companies not just in the way in which you kind of develop a speculative asset but also you know some of the corporate governance challenges in running public companies uh in those sectors there there are a lot of similarities, uh, you know, unfortunately, our regulators uh, tend to have a lot of familiarity with mining and resource stocks and relatively little familiarity uh, with life sciences. And, and so there's a, a knowledge gap there that really, frankly, needs to be, you know, built, needs to be traversed if Australia is going to have a really super vibrant life sciences uh, public company landscape.
0: Mm, mm. So, so what sort of has to be done, do you think, in, in, in a regulatory sense, to uh, to, to address this uh, misunderstanding and, and, and lack of knowledge?
1: We got to have people uh, that are, you know, on the other side of the fence that understand how drugs are developed, understand what the inflection points and the important valuation milestones are for a company, um, and you know, part of that is about helping companies to best. Uh, articulate, you know, best practice guidelines on how to articulate their progress. And that can be very tough for a small biotech company, of course, because we go through periods of time where there isn't a lot of news flow and there isn't a lot to engage the market. And, when it, you know, with the ASX being what it is, uh, there's a you know, significant retail component there, which sort of loses interest in a stock after a while. So there's a strong temptation from entrepreneurs and CEOs to sort of um, you know, try to just make as much noise as they can. And um, and sometimes, sometimes that noise isn't all that useful for investors to understand uh, what the company is really doing. And then the flip side to it is, you know, and I think you know, the best evidence of that was the number of, um, you know, mediocre Aussie biotech companies that jumped on the coronavirus bandwagon when it came out. It took a long time for the ASX, uh, you know, to really understand that m- most of that, was not really value added for shareholders, uh, and, and also the compliance obligations, you know, if you're a life sciences company, a pandemic hits you very hard, Kelix was, if not the first, one of the first companies to actually put out a COVID-19 um, uh, disclosure, even before the regulators had asked for it, to actually state transparently to our shareholders, these, these are the impacts uh on our on our operations that we think are are going to materialize over the next 12 months um and it, it took a long time for regulators to understand that and i think you know that's just a nice succinct example of where more knowledge is required
0: look with 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 telix, i mean it's it, it, it's it got a as i mentioned earlier it's got it's got a market cap of well over a billion dollars now uh so it, it's obviously got got uh got, got some substance um or a lot of substance, um, but but can you uh, can you tell me sort of what what uh, motivated you to to found the company, which which was uh, fairly late in the pace? I think it was twenty fifteen, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I founded the company in twenty fifteen, but it didn't. It took a couple of years to pull all the assets together and to mobilize the business plan for the company, and it was really only in, in so and for the first couple of years, my co-founder and I, who's a German nuclear medicine physician uh, named Andreas Pluga. Uh, really, uh, you know, very talented uh, guy, and uh, like myself, had a very deep knowledge of the industry. Um, the, the two of us, um, yeah, it took a while to plan it out, and we, we financed the company out of our own pocket for the first couple of years. And then, when we started manufacturing antibodies and stuff like that, it got a bit expensive. Um, and uh, it's probably the reason. It's probably the reason why we have two ex-wives now as a consequence of that <laughs> misallocation of financial resources. Uh, but basically, we um, we we raised a little bit of capital in a sort of, I guess you could call it a pre-IPO or a seed funding round at the beginning of 2017. That was mostly from a bunch of very supportive small cap uh, fund managers here in Australia, as well as a few European family offices. Um, and then we took the company public later that year, uh, in November of 17. And I think that Going public and getting the capital that we needed um, to really supercharge the the business plan, that was, I think, practically speaking, that was the beginning of the company's life. So, to go, when we went public at 65 cents a share on November 17, uh, with an 80 million uh, Aussie pre money valuation, I think the company, we've gone a very long way since then.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you described the company as being a Theranostics play, which is therapeutics and diagnostics. Um, uh, Perhaps you should uh, tell listeners a bit more about where the company's at.
1: Yeah I mean look we we started the company um, because we both believe passionately in this field of nuclear medicine which is really only just starting to find its legs. If I could describe the nuclear medicine world in the last before the last decade or so it was really a commercially fairly low performing area and, and I'd call it a hobby industry. You know a lot of Um, Nuclear medicine departments in hospitals, you know, understandably, they have to handle radiation in a fairly complex physics and chemistry and and clinical environment. And nuclear medicine uh, people are kind of special. They're really scientifically broad. Uh, And the practice of nuclear medicine generally involves making drugs under the supervision of a physician. And, and so it, and it really became like a hobby industry. Every hospital kind of did their own thing. And there were relatively few standardized commercial products. I um, then about 10 years ago, we started to see the emergence of new isotopes and supply chains that allow standardized commercial products to be developed. And, and so, you know, the timing of the company was really a recognition that there was going to be, for want of a, a less resources kind of analogous. Uh, description A gold rush into this field. And we had the opportunity, we're one of the really early companies to go out and look at what was the great stuff that was being done in nuclear medicine, even in some cases where there was data in thousands of patients, uh, to ask the question how do you standardize and, and manufacture a product in a consistent way, and particularly a unique product that's a, literally a melting ice cube from the time you make it. So, unlike other sort of pharmaceuticals where they, they tend to have a shelf life you know, in Telix's product portfolio, we have some assets that have a shelf life that's as short as four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, our, I think our longest shelf life product is like maybe 10 days. Uh, yes. So it's a really, so, you know, we, we are not a, a company that's developing um, sort of discovery stage, high risk assets, where um, our focus is to how, how do you manufacture, scale up and deliver technologies that are fairly well understood. And um, and it turns out, by the way, the reason why we're an ASX listed company, I mean, despite my funny North American accent, I'm obviously an Australian, but part of the reason why we're an ASX listed company is because, believe it or not, Australia is absolutely one of the vanguard uh, country, uh, countries in this nuclear medicine space. We've got a very mature supply chain. Ansto is a big part of the global nuclear medicine supply chain. Uh, we've got amazing uh, centers of excellence here in Australia and almost every city that um, delivers, you know, world-class leading edge nuclear medicine.
0: Is availability of the isotopes a key issue?
1: It's, it's, you know, it becomes less of an issue every day, but in general, yes. I mean, you have to, the supply chain for the, the, the radiopharmaceutical um, you know, product landscape is pretty complicated and uh you you do need to have robust sources of isotopes. Typically in the past, those have not come from the private sector. They've generally come from government investment in in energy and nuclear infrastructure, but that's changing as well. Uh, And it's clear that the investment in this space is really underpinned by a very bright future. I mean, the data data that we and other companies are getting in this space is showing a meaningful impact on cancer care.
0: Okay and and on on that note uh, telex in particular has got uh, some advanced stage products and by, by that I, I I mean in the imaging space rather than the therapy per se um, and uh, I uh, believe you're sort of basically waiting approval regulatory approval for your uh, prostate imaging tool.
1: Yeah. Well, we developed, as you say, and I probably didn't answer your earlier question, which was about Theranostics. I mean, we, to be clear, we are not a diagnostic medicine company. We're a therapeutics company that does precision medicine, and, and the diagnostic piece is very important to that. And it turns out as well that when you're developing diagnostic products, you know, you're not generally sort of terraforming a patient's biology, right? So the regulatory pathway for those products is a little bit um, less strenuous, and you're running clinical trials that are much more compact because you're not waiting for a patient's cancer to progress or, or you're waiting for a patient to die to understand overall survival. Typically, when you're developing an imaging agent, you're injecting a patient and then comparing the spot in the scan to a biopsy or a surgical resection. So you get your primary endpoint in your trial very quickly. And so that's why our imaging products are generally sort of a stage ahead of our therapeutic programs. Uh, and we're in the fortunate position that um, although we develop imaging agents to support our therapy programs you know to select patients and to optimize the patient's individual therapy it turns out that those imaging agents have some clinical and commercial value in of their own right and so part of the strategy for the company was to early commercialize our diagnostic portfolio to then pave the way for the therapeutic portfolio and that that's paving the way in terms of supply chain and manufacturing it's paving the way in terms of regulatory because our imaging agents generally de-risk our therapeutic programs and it's also from a market perspective you know when we go out and sell an imaging agent uh as, as we are getting ready to do we're familiarizing uh our customers with the company with the programs that we're developing and clearly we have to be careful i mean we, we can't go out we can't sell products that are in clinical development but the The imaging certainly becomes an educational entry point for the therapeutic programs.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. So, look, I mean, in summary, uh, Telex is all about clearer images. And in terms of an actual therapy, uh, I presume it's it's all about a more more targeted therapy that doesn't sort of spew radiation everywhere and bombard uh, healthy cells with uh, radiation.
1: Yeah, I mean, radiation is a standard. I mean, people should not be afraid of radiation. You know, actually, mm. human beings wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't be here today without a, a little bit of radiation humming around in the background. Radiation is actually a fundamental, biologically vital part of life on Earth. Uh, and without it, um, we'd, we'd have a very, very different world. Um, and radiation uh, can, can be dangerous, and it can be uh, detrimental to human health. Uh But the harnessing of radiation in cancer care is an amazingly important tool. It's a tool that we've had now for, um, you know, uh, well, since Marie Curie uh, oohed and odd over, uh, I guess, a little bit of um, a bit of radium glowing in the dark in her lab. uh, You know, she she began something which has become very multifaceted. You know, there's diagnostic radiation, there's therapeutic radiation. But the therapeutic radiation that we most generally associate with cancer care is given in the basement of a hospital with a machine called a linear accelerator and and essentially it shoots high energy x-ray beams at a patient. And to use that effectively, you you can't really treat broadly disseminated or broadly metastatic disease. That sort of radiation is generally good for irradiating a focal area. um, And you can generally only irradiate what you can see, right? So generally imaging is being used to guide that radiation delivery. You're not, you don't say, well, a patient has Liver cancer. I'm just going to radiate the whole, you know, abdo- abdominal area. You're you're generally mapping out and guiding in real time while you're doing the, the the therapy. You're mapping out a very select area of irradiation. But it's exactly as you say. There's a lot of there's a lot of healthy cells that get hit in the process. Um, and if you don't see the disease, if you can't see the disease, you can't treat it generally with that sort of modality. So, what's exciting about targeted radionuclide therapy instead of shooting those x-rays at the patient kind of hoping for the best what we do is we develop targeted drugs that bind to signatures or or targets that are expressed only or typically you know majority on cancer cells um, and then those molecules carry a payload like a smart bomb along with them which is the radi- radioactive isotope and we essentially disrupt the whole radiation oncology industry by moving from an expensive box in the basement of the hospital with a lot of real estate and infrastructure associated with a lot of people involved in it um, to essentially an injection in your arm. And so we essentially hand over radiation oncology to the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah. Terrific. Well, um, you're um, obviously yeah, uh, kicking goals with, uh, with, with, with telex. Um, now now elsewhere, I sort of mentioned uh factor therapeutics before, which uh, um, i think uh, for, from memory they bombed out with a clinical trial for, for wound management and then now they're focusing on, on on vet imaging i'm just uh I'm, I'm just wondering what you sort of learned from experiences like that where things don't go quite according to plan
1: yeah yeah Well, one of the things that's not always appreciated uh, is that drug development has a super high failure rate yeah um, the things that that Telix does are low risk from a clinical perspective because we have a lot of clinical data that underpins the investment we're making. But that's because um, whilst we are developing experimental medicines, um, there's a lot known about how those medicines work. And and also when we're dealing with cancer patients, you know, typically you have a lot more latitude on how you develop a drug in a cancer patient because there's a big unmet need there. Uh, Now, factor was you know, I don't mind talking about factor. I mean, it was an extremely uh, painful period of of my life, Um, not only in terms of the corporate turnaround that I was asked to come in and give effect to, you know, used to be called tissue therapies. It was a company that had really floundered about, was never really all that committed to its drug development, and yet had a very compelling asset in wound care and, and managing serious uh you know serious diabetic and and um venous leg ulcer wounds and these are wounds that um cost the healthcare system a lot of money in the US healthcare system about uh about seven percent of the total expenditure of the US healthcare system goes into chronic wound care and it's a, it's an amazing uh drain on resources and so it's if you can develop a drug um for that market opportunity or for that clinical opportunity it's a very substantial commercial opportunity. Uh, the challenge with Factor was uh, the the mechanism of action and the technology that was developed originally at, um, at QUT. Uh, really great technology, uh, well demonstrated, uh, highly uh, efficacious in animal models. Very nice proof of concept data in in patients. Uh, patients were studied that it had wounds for you know very very serious wounds for a prolonged period of time and. And there were some spectacular examples of patient responses to that therapy, and you know we felt that there was enough clinical evidence there to support doing a, a larger scale trial. So, uh, with a with a restructuring of the management team and the development strategy, and and fixing manufacturing and repairing a pretty damaged relationship with the FDA um, from the prior management team, we we really really replumbed the depths of the company, and we ran um, a you know twenty odd site. Phase 2b trial, which was designed to show if the drug was additive to standard of care. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, it comes back again down to the market knowledge and the sophistication of analysts in the market. So the goal was not to ask the question, does the drug work? We had a reasonably um, strong conviction that there was evidence of, of efficacy. What we were trying to show was if you have a patient that's going to receive the standard of care which is which is basically bandaging and moisture dressings, does the addition of the drug add something better to the patient if standard of care is done properly and what we learned is that you know even if we think the drug has clinical efficacy, it doesn't give you more on top of what the standard of care gives you and um, you know that's that's the clinical trial I and mean, the reason why we run clinical trials is you know, not to put out glossy news flow or you know some story for shareholders to keep the gravy train going of investment the reason why we do clinical trials is to be able to go to payers and get them to pay for a drug and so yes, yes. You, you have to run clinical trials that are going to enable a payer to get behind your product now we have lots of companies not just on the asx and in, in nasdaq as well that are doing clinical trials that are never going to elucidate a data set that will enable a payer to pay for it never um there's clinical trials that are designed to create news flow and buzz but yes. not designed to generate um, a, a commercially meaningful data set and we what we learned from that clinical trial which was a, a great tragedy for the company but um, uh, you know, that clinical trial will go down in the sort of, you know, history of the wound care industry as a very, uh, a very, you know, illuminating study. What we learned is that when we take patients into clinical trials, and we give them standard of care properly, standard of care is really rather good. <laughs> uh, it's, out, it's, <laughs> yes. it's out in the community setting where standard of care is a bit sloppier, right? Because you're not being so rigorous, you're not standardizing the materials, you're not following a, you know, a robust protocol. Everyone's doing a little bit differently. Um, And and even some people are doing it themselves, right? Um, When you when you go out into a clinical trial, everything is locked down, everything is precise, everything is measured. And it turns out that when you when you give that care properly, patients do really, really well. And um, you can try and add a drug on top of it, but it isn't going to do anything better than just properly managing a wound, and um, and that's what we learned. So you now my my personal lesson uh, in in all of it is uh, I will never personally ever invest in a wound care company because I don't believe that you can run wound care trials that um, deliver better than than standard of care. Um, but uh, it's a it's a it's an exciting area, and someday some company is going to develop a cracking drug. Um, and they're going to they're going to have just a, a tens of billion dollar valuation because that is a, a huge unmet need in medicine.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I look, finally, Chris. I mean, just looking at the the ASX sector, um, where, where do you see the best opportunities um, outside of your own field of uh, nuclear medicine? So just uh, sort of with your commentator's hat on, uh, what? What would you back in other words you don't have to name the companies but, but m- m- maybe the uh the science and the sectors i
1: I'll, I'll tell you i'll answer your question in a more indirect way i think increasingly there's a, a growing awareness that whilst access to capital in a localized way is good capital availability is a global thing um human talent is now a global thing i mean think about it we've all spent the last 12 months sitting at our desks right so that means the playing field for human capital has been utterly leveled, right? But to round off your question, you know, when I came back to Australia, I really hated, I really hated the ASX. I I couldn't understand why we had this very speculative um, market. And I couldn't understand why we had, I don't know, 160 companies that, of which I would say, I think when I was writing as a long tail, I probably went after about 70 companies that I thought, if not fraudulent we're certainly very very close to the wire in terms of being an investable company and um, but what I've learned I think you know over the last five years six years is that the ASX is really just an alternative to venture capital it's a different way of of um, you know financing high risk reward companies and I'm actually even of the conviction conviction that there are certain sectors like resources, like energy, like biotech, where the investment horizons are so long that they're actually a poor fit for private equity. And so the idea that um, equity ownership can change as a function of company performance, upward or downward, is actually a pretty is a pretty compelling idea. And and I and I do think um, I mean regulated tightening up regulations. Um, and a little bit more kind of um, professionalism that we've seen in the ASX over the last few years c- certainly helps. You know, we're seeing more and more overseas countries, uh, companies in overseas countries taking an active interest in the ASX as a sort of reasonably high quality secondary market. You know, certainly lots of cash sloshing around in it. Um, and, you know, the, it's it's gone now, I think, beyond resource sector. I mean, I think the ASX... Tech sector, whilst it's pretty frothy, is now established, Um, and I think that um, I think actually life sciences has got a a very very bright future uh, on the ASX. And part of my passion for starting Telix and listing it on the ASX was not just that there was a strategic and an operational benefit to having an Australian domiciled company, but I really wanted to show, you know, maybe maybe it's a point of vanity, maybe it's not a Maybe it's not a very positive sentiment uh, or a reflection on me in some ways, but I wanted to show what you can do if you start a company with corporate governance at the f- forefront of the company's objectives. So in other words, if all things being equal, if you've got a fairly decent technology and you can do something uh, that may be beneficial to patients, you know, subject to some clinical trials, if you if you manage the company and deliver information uh, to shareholders into the market in a way that's sort of best practice and build trust with your shareholder base i think you i think that's a, the the correct way to generate value and i think part of the reason why telix has been successful in the last few years is we've made it a point to be very transparent with our shareholders about what we're doing even when we have setbacks even when we have problems you know we put it out there without too much You know, not that you have to read the third page of a disclosure that says, you know, the outcome was not statistically significant um, to to actually understand what a company is doing. And, and, you know, part of the suffering that we endured, for example, when Factor failed, you know, we we could have sugarcoated the message. We could have done a post hoc analysis and found a subset and and kept the, the train alive. And, and not endured a 90% drop in our share price in one day. But we didn't do that because there wasn't any way that we were going to push an asset forward with the data that we had. We could have kept the company alive, but we weren't gonna generate any value for shareholders that way. No. And, no. You know, and, and I think that's, that's the challenge that we have to go to the next kind of level as a, as a, as a sector, particularly I think in the life sciences sector, you know companies have got to be committed to saying all right when something works great you know have fanfare but when something doesn't work or something really isn't going to cut the mustard there's there's an obligation there to shareholders to make it clear that that's the case
0: yeah, great. No, there's a few, a uh, few sort of pertinent messages there, and uh, I'm I'm glad uh, we, we could we could chew the fat for uh, for, for hours longer. Um, but uh, I'm glad that as a North American, you, you don't uh, re- regard the uh, the local sector as a as a backwater. Um, so, Chris, great to talk, and uh, and good luck with uh, your uh, endeavours.